What's happening, everybody? Welcome to Wednesday edition of Texans All Access from the Hyundai Texans Radio Studio. I am your host, John Harris, football analyst, sideline reporter for your Houston Texans. As the Texans get ready for the third game of a three-game homestand, this one against Russell Wilson and the Seattle Seahawks. Now, will it be the last time the Texans see Russell Wilson with the Seahawks? Potentially. There's actually a tweet I saw today that Russell in the offseason would drop his no-trade clause for potentially the Giants, the Saints, and the Broncos, those three teams. So if those three teams are in the running, you never know who else they might be in the running for if they're not able to reel in Russell Wilson. But the matter at hand is Russell Wilson on Sunday at NRG Stadium. Now, if you remember eight years ago at NRG Stadium, hey, man, that was brutal. Andrew Dory and I will talk about that a little bit later on our In the Lab segment. That'll be a little bit later in this hour. So we've got plenty for you. John Boyle from the Seattle Seahawks team reporter is going to join DP Sidhu for our Behind Enemy Sidelines interview. We'll have our little In the Lab with Drew Doherty talking about a couple of those Seattle games. The one in 2017, the one in 2013. We'll talk about that. Then we will have men behind the mics. Mark Vandermeer sits down with Steve Rabel. Always not Vrabel, but when you say Steve Rabel, it sounds like you're saying Vrabel, but it's Steve Rabel, play-by-play voice, long time play-by-play voice of the Seattle Seahawks. In fact, was a quarterback with the Seattle Seahawks. He has such a distinct voice. The Seahawks have been in so many big games. You hear his voice, you go, whoa, that's cool hearing his voice. So we'll have that. Then it's Wednesday. So a little where are they now with Andre Davis, former return man, extraordinaire, played in college with Michael Vick, played in the NFL with a number of teams, including your Houston Texans, made one of the greatest catches in a game that I've seen in 2007, one of the craziest games ever. We know it as the Rob Baronis game because Rob Baronis hit eight field goals that day against the Texans, but the Texans had a furious fourth-quarter comeback in a game. They had looked putrid for three quarters, and Davis caught a touchdown. It seemingly put them ahead to stay, but a final field goal sent the Texans back home. Well, I guess they were at home, but they sent them home from NRG Stadium with the loss. But Andre Davis was incredible in that game. Incredible, making that big catch at the end. That was just one of the craziest games I think I've ever seen in my life. Uh, And I've never seen a press box explode the way that it did i was up at the press box for that one and it was oh boy it was nuts so andre davis a little where are they now but we're going to kick off the show with the general manager of your houston texans nick casario now there's some news with the texans before we get to nick about linebacker zach cuttingham he has been waived by the team he had he is subject to the waiver process So we'll see if any team claims them on waivers. The thought being, no, they're not going to claim them at that particular contract value, that they'll let them clear waivers, and then there will probably be a number of teams that will be in the running to go get Zach Cunningham for the remainder of this year. Now, we had this conversation with Nick Casario before that happened. So our conversation with him was before – this process of waving Zach Cunningham came to be. It also was, if you heard Sean and Seth with Nick on Tuesday, that obviously happened 
uh, before that interview happened, before uh, Cunningham was waived as well. So nothing here on Zach. We obviously will ask Nick Casaria about that next week, but there's plenty of stuff we hit with Nick as we get ready for the Seattle Seahawks and a quick review of last week against the Indianapolis Colts. Joining us right now, Texans Radio, it's Texans General Manager Nick Casario. Nick, great to see you. A rough game against the Colts, and you used two different quarterbacks. Injury situation with Tyrod, unable to get the offense going. Real tough spot for the offense on Sunday. Yeah, bottom line is it didn't play well enough. Um, you know, just weren't able to possess the ball. Field position was a factor in the game. You know, they had better field position and, you know, any end of running game. You know, defensively, couldn't stop the run, and we didn't do enough offensively, and, you know, Offensively, you're on the field to do two things, you know, move the ball and score points. And, you know, we didn't do that, unfortunately. So turn the ball over the first two possessions, um, you know, which led to points on their end. So, um, you know, obviously got to get some things cleaned up and get them fixed. Um, but like we've talked about each week, we got to turn a page and get ready for the next challenge, which is Seattle, which they'll do some things differently than Indianapolis has done. And they'll present their own challenges in their own right. Nick, when you're facing an, an FC team, a team that you don't know a whole heck of a lot, I mean, we faced Russell Wilson twice in his career. We know how great he is. We've seen him do some magic in those two games in particular. But when you face an NFC team that you don't see a lot, is that I don't think it changes preparation too much, but just the fact that you haven't seen them, how much does the scouting and the scouting staff kind of play a role in that getting ready for him because you haven't played them? Yeah, you really have to do a deeper dive and just understand their personnel, understand the construction of the team, understand their philosophy of how they play in each phase. So – when you play a team once every four years or whatever it is, when you're not accustomed to seeing, you might see them in some crossover yeah. tape. But so you have to maybe spend a little more time and just understanding the actual personnel on the team. Yeah. You know, you probably know some some of the basic faces, but to really do a deeper dive onto their team and team and understand the composition will be important. Understand their strengths, understand their weaknesses, how they play, who they put in certain positions, yeah. what they ask them to do. So when you don't see a team for a while, you just have to educate yourself, and it, it doesn't necessarily change the preparation. You just might have to allocate a few more, uh, little more time and resources. Nick, Coach Cully said he would announce a starter later in the week at the quarterback position. Davis got into the game on Sunday. After sitting for a while, what do you expect from him if it's him uh, as far as being able to watch and learn and now use what he's learned and having starters reps as well, if that's the case. Yeah, any player, if you're when you're playing them, and you're playing them, and you're not playing. You know, when you go back and play, hopefully you've learned some things and taken some of the information and processed it over the course of however many weeks. So the expectation is the same for the player when they're on the field, go out there and perform well, do their job, and be able to execute the assignment, whatever that is. So whoever the quarterback is this week, whether it's Ty or whether it's Davis. The expectation would be the same, but sometimes when players don't play and then they go back on the field, they just have more of an understanding and maybe more of a comfort level uh, of you know what the expectation is and what that flow of the game is going to be like, understanding that even if you played earlier in the year, you're playing a totally different opponent, and some of the things that they do on whatever side of the ball it is are going to be different. I know when it comes to quarterbacks, Nick, there's no one particular asset that – you think, oh, man, this guy's got a great arm, this guy's got great legs, you know, physical asset. But is there anything intrinsically, any non-physical asset, I mean, just processing, some tangible that your quarterback or you want your quarterbacks to absolutely, without question, have? Like, look, they don't have to have a strong arm, but they've got to have this. Is there something that you want to have in that particular position? You have to be able to process a lot of information in a quick fashion on the field. So mm-hmm. it, it, specific to a passing play, a passing play is going to take two to three seconds. So right. before the ball is even snapped, 
you have to have an understanding of what's going on the other side of the ball and to be able to anticipate what's going to happen. Now, if team disguises or maybe they show you a different look, then you have to react. So understanding what's going on the other side of the ball, that's more important sometimes than the, the, the play you're running. But, you know, when you're a younger player, learning the play, learning the system, that's one thing. Really where you have to spend more of your time is understanding the other side of the ball and how what they're doing maybe affects w- with a call or where we're going to go with the ball. So I would say the speed of the decision-making and then making good decisions and being accurate with the ball, those are some attributes that, regardless of who's playing quarterback, are important. Historically, when you've been around quarterbacks, how long does it take them to understand the fronts as opposed to the coverages? Because they're always looking at the coverages. Okay, I know that's cover two, that's cover four, and I get all that. But how long does it take for them to understand the fronts and what the fronts actually mean for them? Yeah, typically the fronts are tied to the coverage. So, and then you have to say, okay, base defense versus substituted defense. So they're two different things. So if you're in base defense, their call sheet might be a little bit smaller. So when they're in base defense, whether it's versus 12, 13, or 22 personnel, they only have these calls. So you eliminate all these other calls. Don't even clutter your mind or your head. Okay, when Mm -hmm. they're in this, when they play this front, it corresponds with this coverage. When you get to substituted defense, there's more multiples because there's more front variation. There's more defensive backs on the field. You can do a few more different things, and it's going to happen a little bit quicker because you're going to have faster players on the field. So instead of a linebacker on the field, not that all linebackers are slow, but instead of having a linebacker, then you have a defensive back on the field. So whether it's a corner or a safety. So maybe he's a little bit smaller, but he can cover more space. He's maybe a better man coverage player. So there's a lot more variability when you look throughout the course of the league. When you get to substitute defense, especially on third down, there's so many more multiples, and it's maybe a little bit harder to figure out, but you have to eliminate some things, and maybe, okay, when they play this sub front, okay, they play this coverage behind it. The teams that kind of keep it moving, which there are some coordinators, that there's sort of a spin-the-dial type of mentality, yep. then you have to have maybe some all-encompassing, all-purpose coverage, coverage, you know, beater-type plays that if they do this, okay, then we can do this, and not, well, if it's just against this one particular look, all right, then you have one thing. Now, if you don't have an alert, if they play a different coverage, then you know, you're just going to have to make the most of it. So yeah. it's an interesting observation, but typically the front and coverage are tied together, and then understanding, delineating between base defense and substitute right. defense and the coverages associated with it and how they play those coverages is important to understand. How hard is it to evaluate that pre-snap processing stuff from college tape for quarterbacks <laughs> versus, say, interviewing them or whatever other time you might get with them? It's it's a good question. The reality is the way the college game, not by uh, in all cases, mm-hmm. but the way the pace is played, the simplification of defense. It's not that this defenses doesn't want don't want to do a lot of things. Right. They just have to get the call in quickly. So you can't have a lot of calls, a lot of adjustments. You're on the ball. You have to have a quicker call on the defensive side of the ball. So there's going to be less variation for the offensive side of the football. And a lot of it is you get the information from the – they're looking upstairs. Okay, what are they playing? Okay, then they tell the quarterback, run this play. So I would say the biggest difference between college football and professional football is probably more in the coverage variability and the front variation. So if you're not accustomed to seeing that, then there's going to take some time for you to learn that, and some learn at a better pace than others. Defensively last week, got rocked with the turnover early, gave up the seven, but after the fumble, forced to miss field goal, and then it seemed like the defense sort of settled in sort of matched the physicality for a while with the Colts and then it felt like in the fourth quarter, maybe on the field a little bit too long. What do you think defensively, especially in that front seven going against the Colts offensive line, is pretty good? Yeah, at times we hung in there. Um, we were able to play decent situationally. Got off the field on third down a few times. Had to stop in a red area, you know, or force in the field goal or missed a field goal. But then in the end, they just, you know, wore us down a little bit in the running game. And 
we had too many plays. There was too much space in the defense. So between being in the right spot, between being able to defeat blocks and finishing the tackling, I mean, they ran for 200 yards or close to 200 yards or whatever it was. So we just need to do a better job in a running game, which is, you know, run fits, tackling, and just making sure that, you know, we're in the right spots on a consistent basis. Seattle's defense they give up a lot of yards in the total yardage category, Nick, and I know you look much more deeply than that. But in scoring, D, they're actually pretty good, relatively. So what do you make of that? It seems like a bend-but-not-break thing for them. Yeah, when you look at their team defensively, um, they're the top 10 and third down in red area defense. So when the situational aspects, they've been good to your point, Mark. So red area defense corresponds directly with points. So if you don't give up a bunch of big plays and can play decent in the red area, then you keep the scoring threshold down. So – They've given up some yards. I would say their their defense, they have a very distinct way of playing. Um, they play hard. So they've gone from – so when Pete took over as a head coach, you've had a, sort of the Seattle three sort of defense in place, and they had Gus. All right, Gus left, and then, you know, Ken Norton's been the coordinator there who was with Pete back at USC. I would say over the last few years, Ken's added his uh, kind of own twist to how they play defense. So it's not just necessarily one thing. Um their front, they've got good players in the front. Their defensive ends, their outside linebackers are really defensive ends. they got a couple good players inside. Puna Ford, you know, undersized but has some quickness. And then they really have four guys on defense who are kind of a pain in the ass. I mean, Brooks and Wagner in the top five in the NFL in tackles. Mm-hmm. I mean, Brooks, really good player at Texas Tech, you know, a local kid, not local but from Texas here, highly productive at Texas Tech. Wagner's been as good of a linebacker in the league as there's been for a long time. And then – at safety, a really good combination between Diggs and, and Adams, and they kind of complement each other very well. I mean, we talked about Buda Baker going back to Arizona. I would say they're similar, but they're different. Jamal's just a bigger guy, but in terms of how they play, kind of with their hair on fire and being mm-hmm. a physical presence, I think Jamal had nine and a half sacks last year from a safety position, and that's a lot just coming off the edge, just rushing, just beating the guy one-on-one. So, I mean, we played against Jamal twice a year, and he was a pain in the ass when we played him in New England. And he's a really good run for safety, and he's kind of expanded his game, does some good things in the deep part of the field. So those four guys we're going to kind of have to account for and take care of and make sure we take care of the guys on the edge. Nick, as you've, over the years, been involved with drafts and seen younger players, whether it was somebody that you liked, was has there been a time where you watched a player, whether you guys were going to draft him in New England or here or wherever, and you're watching the draft and you're watching this guy and he's not drafted, and all of a sudden you see him drafted in the third or fourth round, I think of Russell Wilson, and I see him drafted in the third round. I remember thinking, whoa, that's a good spot for him. Wow, I can't believe he got to the third round. I think he's going to have some success. Have you had situations like that where you've been watching a guy and you're like, I really like this guy. Maybe he's not a fit for us, but, boy, he went to third or fourth round. I can't believe he fell to this for whatever reason. And you like that guy, and that guy turned out to be a success. Have you had, have you had players over the years that you kind of looked at and went, I know that dude's going to be a star somewhere? Yeah, there's always players that, you know, wherever they get drafted, you look and go, okay, you know what? Oh, this guy's a pretty good player. Whether or not you'd want him on your football yeah, team yeah, or right. not, I would say in Russell's case, you know, Russell and I drafted the third round like you mentioned. And, you know, the draft, we'll talk about this a little bit later on, but it's not necessarily about, you know, where you get drafted. There's right, so right. many good players in this league that have been drafted throughout multiple rounds. You talk about specifically about Russell. Talk about Stephon Diggs, like one of the best receivers in the league. Yeah. This guy was drafted in the fifth round for whatever reason. You know, Matt Judon was another fifth round pick. Poyer and Hyde, you know, safety's playing last night. I think one of them was a fifth, one of them was a seventh. Yep. So the reality is there's football players that are going to be scattered throughout the draft, and you can find good, fo- good football players at any level. And it's not about where they get drafted or what round it is. It's about however you feel you have to get them on the team. I mean, Jonathan Taylor, going back to him last week, I mean, he was drafted 41st overall, yep. whatever it was. And not a guy's one of the best backs in the league. So 
it's not necessarily about where. It's just really about if you have a conviction, a belief in the player, figure out a way to get them on your team, wherever it is. Then it's ultimately about their performance right. once they get in the building, not necessarily where they were drafted. Nick, you have so many things you're responsible for. With the games you have left on the schedule and no winning season in sight or playoff berth, but you do have games you can win down the stretch here, how do you approach the evaluation of the players you currently have here and, and how they're going to play out the rest of the season? Sure. The bottom line is you want to try to go out there and play good football. So you have to prepare, have to understand the opponent, and be able to go out there and execute whatever the game plan calls for. And, you know, some players have made some progress during the course of the year. They take advantage of their opportunities, whether it's TT, whether it's KG, Gruger Hill. So you just want to see continual week to week, go out there, okay, here's what the game plan is. Let's go out there and perform. And if you do our jobs and we're able to execute some plays, you want to see success regardless of where you are in the season. So that's all we can worry about is week to week. So this week the focus is on Seattle. Let's do the best job we can preparing for Seattle and the challenges that they present. And then we'll worry about next week, next week. And then we get to the end of the year, then we can go back and do more of a comprehensive deep dive about our team and where we are currently and where we're going to be moving forward. Is it tough for the players because they want to show out individually and show that they're playing well, yet it's a team game. you got to fit within the team scheme. What do you make of that part Yeah, I think there's a lot of pride, generally speaking, in NFL players and professional players. Like, they want to go out there. They want to do well. They want to perform well. And the reality is they're being evaluated by us or the rest of the league as well, especially if you're not under contract for next year. So, there's plenty of opportunity, and it's all about opportunity and what you do with that opportunity once it's presented to you. So I would say people care about winning, players care about winning. They want to go out there and perform well. And, you know, some players have different mindsets when it comes to this, but you can't worry about the record. The record is what it is. It's all we can focus on is doing our job, going out there and trying to play good football against Seattle on Sunday. Corollary to that, no matter what the record is, how much is the next year and the next year after that front of mind for you as the GM of the organization? Yeah, I, I think generally speaking, philosophically, like we try to, I try to look at things kind of in two-year increments. Right. So this year to next year. So once we get through next this season, then kind of look at next year and then 2023. Right. So you kind of have an idea where you are contractually, what players you have under your control, what players you don't, where you're going to be at the salary cap. The salary cap is going to be called $208 million or whatever it is. We know as we sit here today where we're going to be at the start of uh, you know, the new league year in March, but that could change. There could be things that, that could alter that or change that. So try to focus on the here and now, but also mindful of, all right, once the season is over, we're going to have to start to turn the page and prepare. I think that's the beauty of kind of what we do in professional sports. So you can't get too caught up in looking back on what happened. Like we all see, have seen what's happened. We've all had to deal with what's happened. It is what it is. There's nothing we can do about that. We can control what happens moving forward. And as we start to think about next year, which I would say, you know, Tremont kind of falls into that bucket a little bit. We talked mm -hmm. about that yep. before the game, John. Yep. And just, you know, it's about this year, but it's also about moving forward. A player that wasn't under contract, taking advantage of his opportunity. And that's the kind of player that we wanted to be able to keep under control for another year. So, which was, I would say, the rationale and the reasoning behind that uh, extension. There's other players that we've had discussions with on the team, whether or not those agreements come to fruition now or whether it's January, February, or March. We're really open-minded about when that happens, and if we have to go to free agency on some players, then we'll go to free agency on players and just try to build a team for next year. But trying not to get too – the coaches are not going to really get too caught up and worried about next year. Right, right. Their focus is on Seattle. Mm -hmm. Trying to, you know, short-term focus on Seattle, but also have some big-picture things. This morning I just came down. We're going through kind of our initial round of draft meetings because we're kind of starting not prep, that process. So. It's a merger of a lot of different entities and a lot of information. So part of my responsibility is try to sort through it and sift through it. 
and some of it's more germane depending on the time of the year that you're in. All right, we have the uh, Tax Act Texas Bowl coming up January 4th here at NRG Stadium. It's LSU and Kansas State. That'll be on a Tuesday night, Coach. So will you just jump into the bowl, just walk down from your office and have a little look at some of the talent here? <laughs> Absolutely. That's the beauty of being here in NRG and having a bowl game. So mm-hmm. I'm sure that'll be a fun experience. You know, two good teams. There'll be a lot of players, you know, be a fair amount of players that are going to end up in, you know, whether it's a bowl game uh, combine, wherever it is. So, you know, absolutely come down for a few minutes, you know, watch a little bit of football and then go back up and, you know, finish a preparation for whoever the opponent is that week. The last time LSU was here <clears throat> was 2015. They played Texas Tech. And I started rattling off the names that came out of that one particular game. And it's Jamal Adams, uh, Godshaw, Jam- uh, Arden Key, uh, Tredavious White, Playoff wow. Lenny, Mahomes, DeAndre White, Jakeem Grant. I mean, it, that game was absolutely loaded. But bowl games have changed. Nick, how do you guys look at that situation? And maybe every single one is separate. That, you know what, I've done what I can. I'm going to go draft prep. You guys go off to the bowl game. We saw that a few years ago with Fournette, with Christian McCaffrey. They're kind of the first to do that. Never see more players kind of take that route. How do you guys factor that in or not into an evaluation of a player? The best way to look at that is just be respectful of the individual decision. Every player is different. Everybody has a different thought process and philosophy as it pertains to that. And really, you can't hold one decision against that particular player. There might be some extenuating circumstances where they make that decision. So I think you have to look at everything in totality. If you just use one specific decision and make that a microcosm for everything else, that's probably not doing the player justice. Just Mm -hmm. like the same thing. He goes to the Senior Bowl. He has a great week. Okay, wow, we're just going to base everything based off that one week. Or he went to the combine. He jumped 50 inches and ran 4-1. Like, okay, we're going to base everything off of that. You just have to be smart about how you take all the information and put it together in the picture and the profile of the player. Nick, thanks a lot for joining us. Good luck this week. Thanks, guys. Take care. I don't know, man. If I find a guy with a 50-inch vert running 4-1, I might snatch that sucker up. Maybe not first round, but I'm going to snatch him up, man. Those are elite traits. But that was fun. That was a fun conversation with Nick Casario. Again, I'll reiterate what I mentioned earlier. We did that interview with him prior to Zach Cunningham being waived. That obviously is the news of the day for the Texans. Zach will be subject to the waiver process. And once he clears that process, and I expect him to, given his contract value, then he is open to sign with any team. I've seen a number of teams that may be interested. Obviously, there are some uh, things that those teams have to consider as it pertains to Zach, but wish him well. Uh, He made some of the most incredible plays here with the Texans. Um, And it just, uh, as I think Aaron Wilson tweeted this today, he said from a league source, it was time. It's it's been time, in all honesty. It's been time. Whether it was uh, Zach in training camp, missing practice, whether it was uh, the, the third preseason game, you know, obviously last week, you know, it was it was time. It was time for a clean break on both sides. So wish Zach the best of luck in the future, regardless of where he goes. If it's in division, we'll see him twice. That's fine. Um, but wish him luck uh, wherever he goes. Also happening in, from a news cycle perspective, Zach being waived. Cravon LeBlanc was signed to the practice squad. He had been on the 53-man roster. They had to release him and then brought him back to the practice squad. Also, released from the practice squad was Damon Hazelton. Now, there was a massive transaction wire post last week, and one of those was Philip Dorsett. 
he was out of practice. It's fun to watch him. Boy, he is, he is smoking fast. Smoking fast. So uh, a lot of things happening amongst the receiver core. Um, Hazleton off the practice squad. We'll see what else happens uh, with news as it pertains to anything happening with this team as they get ready to take on the Seattle Seahawks on Sunday. Speaking of the Seahawks, John Boyle covers the Seahawks for the Seattle Seahawks. He is a team reporter, and he sits down with our reporter extraordinaire, D.P. Sidhu, as we go behind enemy sidelines next right here on Texans All Access. Welcome back to this Wednesday edition of Texans All Access. I am John Harris, football analyst, sideline reporter, and very, very, very hungry. I mean, I get to a point at this, whether it's early in the show, late in the show, if I don't get a snack at some point, I'm going to fall over and, and pass out. But I'm so hungry right now. I need Freddy's. I need Freddy's frozen custard and steak burgers. Freddy's frozen custard and steak burgers is all about the good and creating more of it. More drive through celebrations. More road trips around the block. More family dinners and lunches. More car picnics and desserts. Maybe even second desserts. More being together as much as we can. With 17 area locations in the Houston area, Freddy's keeps the good going with a taste that brings you back. And if you're as hungry as I am, Freddy's will fit the bill. You get the steak burger, you get the fried cheese curds, or the fries, the fry sauce. Now, I get the cheese curds with the fry sauce, and that is just way indulgent, but that's cool, because if you're hungry, that'll satisfy you. But then, no matter how full you are, you got to get the turtle concrete. I love the turtle concrete. It's one of my favorite desserts anywhere. That's how I do it. If I'm starving, which a lot of times I am, coming home from a game, especially night games. When we have night games at home, I'm dying by the end of the night. And I'm driving. I see those lights on Freddy's. I just pull right in that drive-thru, get my burger, get my cheese curds, get my fry sauce, get my turtle concrete, and that bag is done by the time I get home. So make sure you go check out Freddy's Frozen Custard and Steak Burgers. All right. John Boyle is coming up from the Seattle Seahawks. He's a team reporter for the team, and he sat down with my good friend D.P. Sidhu to talk about the Seahawks, a weird year in Seattle. So here's John Boyle breaking it all down. It's Enemy Sidelines presented by Microsoft. My guest this week, John Boyle. He is the team reporter for the Seattle Seahawks. John, Seahawks are coming off a big win after that three-game losing stretch, and it just seemed like there was so much in the news about um, head coach Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson and where the future of the team was headed. But I imagine with the win on Sunday, that's probably quieted the noise a little bit, has it? A little bit. That was very much needed. It's, it's been a tough season for a number of reasons. And yeah, as you mentioned, three losses in a row. Uh, they had lost six of seven. It, it, you have to go back to 2011 before this team had w- lost three games in a row prior to this year. So it's been a tough year, but yeah, much needed, big win, exciting win over a division rival. So, you know, there's it's an uphill battle from here, but this team feels like it still has a lot to fight for down the stretch. Yeah, especially with Russell Wilson there at quarterback. We saw him get injured in week five and then have the surgery, get the pin put in his finger, and then he made that really cool announcement. Uh, I'm a big fan of succession, so I saw the <laughs> announcement on Instagram that he was coming back. And then it seemed like it was tough sledding for him in his return. Do you some of the losses had something to do with maybe him coming back too early or was was the finger still bothering him and and what really changed for him in this past Sunday's win yeah you know nobody's gonna say he came back too early and you know Pete Carroll has made the point that they you know they had to see enough in practice to let him play they weren't just gonna let him make that decision on his own so they felt good about him coming back 
but sure. I mean, he, he was only a few weeks, you know, a month removed from surgery when he came back and he didn't quite look like his usual self. He, he just missed some throws. He doesn't usually miss. You know, he's a, been a very accurate quarterback throughout his career. And we've seen the last few games prior to this past Sunday where he just misses some throws. And, you know, this past week he was, you know, complete 80% of his passes and he just, he looked like his old self. So yeah, I think there's just an element of his finger needs some time to get a little more healed also just maybe some rust. I mean, he's never for 10 seasons, he never missed a game. He never missed a regular season practice even. So, you know, taking a month off in the middle of a season might've just thrown him off a little bit in that regard too, regardless of the injury. All right. Well, he's got one of the best one, two punches um, in the league with wide receivers, Tyler Lockett and, and DK Metcalf. So they have about the same number of targets, but it seems like Metcalf has twice as many touchdowns as Lockett this year. Uh, what do you make of the roles in the passing game this season? Is it different than how it's been in the years past? It, you know, it's pretty similar to what we saw last year. And it's just, it's always interesting with those two. You, it, you know, I'd hate to deal with them for fantasy football, but I'm not a fantasy guy because you never know which game, you know, who it's going to be. A lot of times it just depends on how teams try to defend them. You know, you'll see a team try to take DK Metcalf away and Lockett has a big game or vice versa. This past game, was one of the rare times it's pretty balanced between them. I feel like more often than not, it's one has a big game and the other one doesn't. But yeah, they're over the course of the season, their body of work is pretty similar other than, as you said, you know, DK Metcalf's kind of been the bigger red zone target, which, you know, makes sense when you look at his physical makeup. He's he's the big body guy, but both those guys have been great for this franchise for a while now. All right, Seattle's defense. I don't know if it gets as much attention nationally as it does probably locally, but uh, they shut out the 49ers in the second half of that win, and they're allowing just 20.8 points per game, which is the third fewest uh, in the NFL. So throughout the losses, what's been the most impressive part about this defense? It seems like they pretty much stayed consistent throughout the season. Yeah, you know, they they started off a little rough. They gave up, um, I think it was over 30 points in back-to-back losses early in the year, and they gave up a lot of yards early. So it's funny, you look at their, st- I think they're still like 31st in yards allowed but a lot of that came early and they've been really impressive especially we consider with the offensive struggles that defense has been on the field a ton the seahawks have run the fewest plays in the nfl they've they won time of possession against san francisco for the first time all season they've had the better time of possession so it's been a tough battle for the defense just in terms of how much they're on the field but as you said they've you know they're, they're pretty good in the scoring defense they've been good in the red zone all year they've been good on third down so um, it, you know, hats off to that group because they've had some tough situations with the offense struggling and they keep battling and I, they've kept them in a lot of games, even in all these losses. So that's kind of become, you know, we thought we all came in the season thinking Russell's in this offense would be what carries the team, but the defense has really been more the strength of late. All right. Well, the Texans will face Adrian Peterson for the second time this year. The last time they faced him, he was uh, playing for the Titans. So after getting released, the Seahawks picked him up, put him on their practice squad and last week he, he scored a touchdown. So what do you envision for Adrian Peterson this week? Maybe a bigger role or does he take a step back? Does Alex Collins come back into the fold? What do you make of this run game when, the, when they face the Texans? Yeah, you know, we'll have to see. You mentioned Alex Collins. That'll be kind of the question mark of, you know, he, he's been playing through kind of a groin abdominal injury situation for much of the season since he took over that starting job from Chris Carson who's out for the year. So Pete Carroll did say, you know, Collins getting the, the time, the week off finally to, to rest might help him get back. But I think they do like, you know, Adrian Pearson. I mean, look, he's not, he's not 2015 or 2012 Adrian Pearson at this point, but he does still have kind of a physical presence that maybe they don't have 
in that backfield without Chris Carson. So we'll have to wait and see who all is available. You know, they like what they saw at Rashad Penny last week in a bigger role. So it's probably going to be a little mix and match, but I, I would imagine we might see Peterson in some capacity once again. So the Seahawks will face Justin Britt for the first time, not yeah. in a Seahawks uniform, which um, Texans fans, not a lot to be super excited about this year, but they, we do like what we've seen out of Justin Britt so far, even in the off season and in training camp, he just came off IR. So he's back in the starting lineup. What, what stands out to you about Britt from uh, the years that you've covered him uh, when he was with the Seahawks? Yeah, I mean, he was a guy that really developed into a leader and just kind of a really steady presence on that offensive line. You know, he he moved around a bunch early in his career. He started his career as a tackle. They tried him at guard, and he really found a home at center. And then, you know, unfortunately, the knee injury cut short his time here, and, and it didn't work out to bring him back free agency-wise. But really cool to see him back starting. You know, he was a guy that, you know, personally is just a locker room presence for the media. He was great to deal with, always a very accountable guy who would you know take any questions people had and yeah just good dude and glad to see he's doing well out there all right what about for yourself what are some of the storylines you'll be covering for this week's game yeah I mean first and foremost to me it's all about can this offense kind of build off the progress it showed as I kind of referenced earlier it, it had been a real struggle for a while for the offense you know really dating back to before Russell Wilson got hurt, but then especially after the injury. So they, you know, they started slowly against the 49ers last week, but then really picked it up. They had three touchdown drives and really should have probably had five touchdowns, but they turned it over twice right near the goal line. So if the offense can, you know, build off that and Russell Wilson once again looks like he did, all of a sudden you start looking at this team with the defense playing how it has been, and they do look really dangerous, like a team that might be able to go on a run. All right. Good stuff. John Boyle, team reporter for the Seattle Seahawks. John, thanks so much for the time and we'll look forward to seeing you here on Sunday. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the trip out there. I always listen for that part in DP's interviews at the very end where she says, hey, look forward to seeing you. Sometimes you meeting those people for the first time. We didn't have that last year. It was just so weird. Now that we have it back, it's kind of cool to be able to travel all the different stadiums and reporters and such traveling all the different stadiums. So I'm looking forward to seeing John Boyle myself. Maybe I'll make it up to the press box and Get a few nuggets of wisdom for him from him before the game. Now, Drew Doherty and I try and give you nuggets of wisdom every single time we get in front of the mic, especially when we do our podcast in the lab. I have a little snippet of that for you next as it pertains to some of the games we have played against the Seahawks. My God, they've been wild, to say the least. That's next on Texans All Access. Oh, yeah, it's in the lap time on a Wednesday edition of Texas All Access. I'm your host, John Harris, football analyst, silent reporter, and one half of the aforementioned podcast duo, Drew Doherty and John Harris. And we were sitting there trying to figure out, okay, what do we talk about in the lab? And for some reason, one of us chimed in and goes, man, remember that 2017 game? And all of a sudden, it was like, that's it. Let's go. Let's talk about the last few games we played against the Seahawks because the last three have been They've been kind of wild, kind of wild. In 2017, that might be the, I don't know if the greatest sports day in Houston history, but it's pretty darn close. We'll take a listen in the lab. It's right here. The Texans are hosting the Seahawks this weekend, and it's a team you don't see much of, John, because they're in that other conference. But there have been some bananas games with this opponent. Last time you played there, was 2017. I think it was the most ex- one of the most exciting losses in team history, and that's like one of the worst ways to put it. But 
it was the final <laughs> game of it was the final game of Deshaun Watson's season. It's probably yeah. where most of the damage was done to his knee. They play on a Sunday. He gets hurt yeah. in the game, and then I think the straw that broke the camel's back came Wednesday in practice later that week when he made yeah. a weird move. But he he was kind of limping through that fourth quarter, but he left the field with a lead on the road against a still pretty darn good Seattle team. They went to – Russell Wilson went. Russell Wilson is amazing. Russell I, Wilson is outstanding. Drew, I contend. I contend. And I, I might be – that was a Sunday in October. And for those people that don't remember, that might have been the most exciting sports day I've ever seen in the city of Houston. Yeah. Because that night, as we were flying back – so the, the game itself against the Seahawks was – I mean, it's – it's one of those games you go back and watch and you're like, Oh my God. I mean, it was a heavyweight fist fight. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was back and forth and I, it was, it was amazing to just sit there and watch this like, Oh my God. And then to watch Russell Wilson bring his team back and make the throws and do what Russell Wilson does. It was like, we saw two of the greatest quarterbacks in the league go toe to toe with one another and just lob haymakers. And it was like, yo, this is incredible. And obviously we wanted the Texans to win, no doubt, but they ended up losing 41, 38, but it's just incredible. So we then get to the plane. I don't ever forget for some reason they, you know, on the plane that we're on a lot of times there's a, there's a back stairway and then there's a front stairway. And so we usually go up the back stairway so we don't like merge groups. So we can be separable. For some reason on this flight, the back stairwell wasn't working. So we had to go up through the front. So we had to go through all the players. And I'll never forget seeing Shane Leckler was wearing an Altuve jersey on the plane because <laughs> game five of the World Series was that night. So as we're flying back, and obviously this is a flight from Seattle, so it's a long flight. The game the Astros game against the Dodgers starts right as we get on the plane. And so every so often we would get updates on the, on the plane, like of what was happening back here in Houston, as we're flying towards Houston, because you would get a little bit of Wi-Fi at times and you could do just enough. And so I would get a little bit of Wi-Fi and go, Oh my gosh, they just took a lead. Oh man. The Dodgers just did this. So it got to a point where we were on the buses. We landed we were on the bus when the Astros had won that game, and our bus has to go right by Minute Maid Park almost literally as they're yeah. winning the game. Minutes before. And so, yeah. yeah, minutes before. And so we had all, that all happened in one day of us going to Seattle and playing that game in 2017, which was just incredible, and then having the Astros game, which I contend might be the greatest game in Major League Baseball history the 2017 World Series Game 5, all that took place in one day. I mean, you know, your pulse as a Houston sports fan was just racing all day with the two games that you ended up watching. But that's what will forever stand out to me in that 2017 game for sure. Yeah. And then four years prior to that here, oh. 2013, you're 2-1. You're coming off a loss at Baltimore. You're back home. And you're kind of handling those guys for most of the day. And then they get closer yeah. and closer and closer. And it's a one score game and you got the ball late. And uh, it was a third and sh like four ish. And um, you throw it to the right flat. And, you know, Schaub had started his decline at that point. And Richard yeah. Sherman picked it off, saw it coming, had no problem with it, lost a shoe and route to the end zone, but they tied it up. <laughs> and then 
And then they won it in overtime. And that moved the Texans to two and two. So instead of being three and one, they're two and two. He's thrown pick sixes in weeks two, three, and four now. And he started week one, his first pass he threw in week one, deep in his own territory, was picked off, but not returned for a touchdown. But the Chargers scored on the next play back in San Diego back then. So he was kind of on a streak there where opposing defenses were on to him, but you go to two and two and then the absolute house falls on you the next weekend on Sunday night football in San Francisco. I mean, just one of the ugliest, you know, most disastrous losses, but it was kind of preceded by this one right here. It's there's a lot of revisionist history. Like, Oh, if they win that game, then they go, it, it all, I still kind of think they, they're going to muddle through things and it's going to be a bad season. It's not going to be two and 14 bad, but I, I don't think right, they're right. I don't think the Texans are going to the playoffs and, and doing all that. There were, there were some holes on that team coming out of the 2012 season. I know a lot of people were really excited about 2013. I think we all were. I know that I was very hesitant having watched the last part of 2012. I mean, I said on radio constantly and I was not with the Texans at that point. And that's what makes that 2013 game so interesting because now I, now being, you know, in my role, I don't, I don't miss a play. I'm, I'm always there. I mean, I'm there to the end. I'm, I'm there a lot. Sometimes, you know, one of the last people off the field, sometimes I got to be the first in the locker room. Either way, I don't miss a play. So in 2013, I'm not with the Texans, but I was here that day and I was here with uh, a couple of buddies of mine. One I did a website with and one who was our website programmer. And so we're watching this just domination. Like, man, this is awesome. This is really cool to watch. And so the Texans are on that final drive. And my buddy is always, always likes to leave early guy always he does not want to be in traffic he does not so it's always so he looks at me and goes should we go and he knows that i am the other way i want to see everything i want to be there for i don't i do not like to leave early in the game and so in my mind i'm thinking and then i say it out loud okay well if they score then we know they're going to win but if they mess it up on this play we're soon thereafter. I don't know that I want to be here to see it. So we leave and we're going down the elevators and we're walking down Kirby because we're in the purple lot and we're walking down Kirby and we hear Mark's voice because the game is being broadcast out, out, outside. And we hear Mark's voice and I hear Mark get excited. And of course, you know me, I'm deaf in my right ear. I mean, I can't hear much in my right ear. So I'm, mm-hmm. I, I hear that. I just hear Mark getting excited. And I'm like, Oh man, they scored. And all of a sudden, my buddy goes, no, no, I think it was Seattle who scored. And immediately, we take off on a full sprint for the purple lot. I will never, ever forget that day. And any of you that were there, you'll never forget it either. And not in a good way, my goodness. Oh, what a rough afternoon that was. Hopefully, this Sunday will be much, much different. All right, we get back. It's Men Behind the Mics. Time. Mark Vandermeer with Steve Rabel of the Seattle Seahawks next on Texans All Access. We've got one hour in the books. We got one hour left to go right here on a Wednesday edition of Texans All Access from the Hyundai Texans Radio Studio. My favorite segment that I don't do. No, I shouldn't say that. I don't I shouldn't play favorites, but I really like our men behind the mics segment. During the week, I love when Mark Vandermeer has a chance to catch up with Steve Rabel. These two probably could have taken up the entire second hour, but we got to hear from Andre Davis and our Where Are They Now in the next segment. So we got to cut it at some point. But Steve Rabel is Seattle Seahawk football. Everybody out there knows about Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson and Legion of Boom when it was great. Steve Rabel has been the man calling that action. He was 
a Seahawk quarterback at one point. He's awesome, and I love hearing his voice on our airways. So let's go. Men behind the mics, Mark Vandermeer and Steve Rabel. Joining us right now on Texans Radio, Steve Rabel, the voice of the Seattle Seahawks. Steve, long time no speak. How are you doing, my friend? I'm fine, Mark, and you? Uh, doing well. I think both of us could be having more enjoyable seasons, but the Seahawks are coming off a victory. Uh, for those who don't see the Seahawks very often this year, obviously NFC opponent, we only see each other every four years. Give me two or three of the biggest issues in your mind the Seahawks are having this season. Well, as of this morning now, injury has uh, come up to bite us again. Uh, Jamal Adams is done for the season, shoulder injury uh, this past weekend against San Francisco. Couple that with the fact that we lost uh, Chris Carson, our best running back, uh, thousand yard back to back uh, rusher, uh, lost him earlier in the year. He tried to come back, couldn't do it. Uh, went on IR, had next or had, will have next surgery uh, sometime in the very near future. Russell Wilson obviously misses four weeks, three games, <clears throat> comes back, doesn't play very well because he's still healing. This last weekend against the Niners, his best week coming back. So you put all that together with the injuries, and you know that's no excuse because everybody's got people hurt. Uh, but we're also we're not we haven't run the ball very well since Carson got hurt early on, and for a while went into a real steep nosedive offensively. Just could not figure it out. Uh, part of it had to do with Russ. Part of it had to do with the offensive line, our inability to run, our inability to convert third downs, all those things. And then the defense early on was giving up miles of yardage. They have since gotten better. So, I mean, you kind of look at the whole thing, and and you can probably you can probably put it all under the umbrella of of a injuries and b kind of not good enough in some positions to win a lot of football games this year. Do you think Russell's turning the corner though? You mentioned healing up, had a good game last week. How do you think he is right now? Oh, I I, I think so. I, you know, he's always confident even when he knows that he's not a hundred percent he's never going to say that uh, he's always going to say that that uh, you know I'm, I'm going out there every chance I get to go out there is is uh, an opportunity for a championship performance and sometimes that works out but you know literally when you can't grip the ball very well and the ball sails on you and you're missing guys that you haven't missed in your first 10 years that's that's a little bit of a cause for concern I think the other thing Mark that that has really affected us is when Russell isn't at his best, that's when we get to be in trouble sometimes. Mm-hmm. Without Chris Carson, uh, finally Rashad Penny is starting to come around. He had a halfway decent game this week, but he has been hurt so much in his career that he's just never been able to get on the field and stay on the field. But when he gets on there, sometimes he has a, some pretty big plays. So we needed to have him earlier in the year, and he just couldn't get healthy. Finally, he is. Uh, and then I think teams are taking guys like DK Metcalf away. I mean, you still see Tyler Lockett make catches downfield, but DK's getting covered, double teamed a lot all over the field, combination coverages and the like. So Russ is, you know, he's kind of having to manufacture. And when he's not at his best, we've been asking him to pull it out of the fire for all these years. And sometimes it's just not going to happen. You got to have everybody else play well, too. Steve Rabel, voice of the Seattle Seahawks, joining us on Texans Radio. I was joking with 66-year-old David Culley that he's the young guy in the coaching matchup this week. Pete Carroll at 70, is he any different? He seems like the same energetic guy we've always known. How do you see it, Steve? He absolutely is. He is just remarkable. Uh, He came in here, and I can remember the very first day of practice uh, for these Seahawks uh, in a minicamp after he was named head coach. Uh, and he came in here and uh, 
brought the kind of the USC mantra with him. First of all, always compete. I had never really heard it said that way before. Mm. But then he also brought kind of the the uh, bells and whistles and all the hooping and hollering that you get uh, at a college program. And there were a number of veterans who'd been around for a while who kind of looked at each other and said, whoa, what is this? And pretty soon those guys weren't there. And it was the guys who bought in. It has been that way ever since for Pete. He is so um, up and ready for every practice, every opportunity. He's He really is. I, I played for a coach in college, uh, Pepper Rogers, who spent a lot of time up on mm. the tower. Remember how, how yeah. coaches used to stand up on the tower and watch practice? Pete Carroll is right in the middle of everything. And he is correcting and coaching up and making comments and high-fiving every single play with players. I watched uh, the early part of practice one day a couple of weeks ago, and he's running 70 years old, and he's running 60-yard striders in our indoor facility over there. As the guys were warming up, he was over there warming up and running some striders, getting loose. I mean, I, I can't find my butt with both hands most mornings, and he's 70 and out there running. So he's just he's just an amazing guy, and that attitude is always on the positive side. Steve, Bobby Wagner leads the league in tackles, and we always talk about Russell Wilson with the Seahawks, and maybe people from the outside looking in don't talk about Bobby Wagner enough. What does he mean to this football team? Well, Bobby is is uh, a real student in the game. When he first came up, he, he was – I mean, he's always been a, a really smart football player. But when he first came up, he relied um, almost exclusively on great physical ability. Not real big, but really quick could diagnose and would hit you a ton over the years, as you know, watching any linebacker and watching any player, they tend to start to lose some of those physical skills. Well, he's worked really hard to keep it uh, as, as best he can takes care of his body, but now watch his film like, like uh, uh, a crazy person. He's always in there. He's watching it at home. He's watching at the practice facility. There are times when you'll see Bobby kind of get knocked back by a guard you know, coming out, and he's got to kind of fight through that. And he'll make the tackle, but it'll be about four yards, five yards deep. And that, not that that's a cause for concern. That's his job to make those plays. You'd like to see some of those linemen stay off of him, you know, with the help of the defensive front. But, you know, they're still, he leads the NFL in tackles. Jordan Brooks, uh, his running mate there, the youngster at linebacker, who will probably one day take over for Bobby uh, in the middle is like the leading league so it gives you some idea first of all how good a tacklers these guys are unfortunately it also tells you how much our defense has been on the field when you have that many chances to make tackles steve rabel voice of seattle seahawks with us on texans radio steve what about the division uh we were in arizona they're obviously very tough and they got through that non-kyler murray d andre hopkins period pretty well for themselves uh but what do you think of the other three out in the nfc west right now yeah, and those Cardinals caught us at just the time when we didn't need them to to play well with their backups because we had mm-hmm. um, you know Russ didn't play and and uh, obviously we had the other issues as well. Um, you know the Cardinals are the, the cream of the crop right now, and uh, them along with Tampa Bay, I think the two best teams uh, in the NFC. And uh, I, I think if if Kyler stays healthy the rest of the way. Uh, I, they're going to be a team to be reckoned with at the end. They're just so explosive. They do so many things well. And defensively, they they've they've shouldn't be a surprise, but sometimes they do surprise. Buda Baker kind of leads the way, but they've got a lot of good football players on that team. Talking to Pete one day a couple of weeks ago, 
uh, before, in fact, the, the uh, game with uh, with Arizona when they came up here and, and uh, beat us a uh, close game. But um, Pete said something to the effect that, you know, they've got a lot of great football players and they'll kind of understand they, they can see what's coming, certainly in uh, in Phoenix, what's going to happen when they have to give. Kyler Murray, his second contract mm. and that next contract, he's going to make about a quarter of the salary cap. As we found out here, suddenly you don't have all those great football players, all those great free agents because you can't afford it anymore. So it, it, that becomes an issue for them on the Ram side. You know, they, they're up and down more than I've seen them this year, uh, more than I've seen them in years past up and down. They don't run the ball as well as they have in the past. I think they're depending a lot on their quarterback. Uh, Stafford and and he's had some good games and bad games um, so I, I think they're a team that we can go down there and beat we go on the road to see them next week uh, and as far as San Francisco we always seem to have their numbers so we played well this week against them beat them twice this season and uh, that that helps make an otherwise kind of dismal season this year a little bit more palatable if you will. Steve, you played wide receiver for the Seahawks, so I think your perspective is so valuable in so many different ways. But in this particular question, uh, share this with me. When the Seahawks go on the road, they travel farther than any other NFL team just to get to the closest opponent. And when you come east, anywhere east, it's got to be that body clock adjustment that so many of the West Coast teams have on top of being farther away than just about every other team. So what is it like when you travel east with the Seahawks? Well, it's uh, it's better now than it was early on in Pete's tenure here. We just had a heck of a time. We couldn't win games going back east for whatever reason. Uh, some of it is psychological. Some of it is just, you know, we weren't very good or weren't as good a football teams as we have been the last uh, seven or eight years now, certainly through the Super Bowl years uh, that we've had. But, you know, there, there is that. Uh, we always used to talk about it when I played. Geez, you don't get to sleep in your own bed. And, and the schedule is different when you're on the road. Just simple things. When do you leave the hotel? Where, you, you know, the stadium, the locker room, all that stuff. That said, these guys now travel in a way that is almost foreign to when I played. Uh, I played back in the late seventies and early eighties. And for an East coast game, we would leave at our plane would lift off at six o'clock on Saturday morning, Saturday morning. And we'd fly into, let's say New York. We're going back there to play at the old giant stadium. And we'd get there and go right to the stadium. And we'd have our Saturday walkthrough special teams, practice, all that stuff. Our coach at the time, Jack Patera, figuring that, listen, get up early. Let's let's get a good workout in on Saturday. You'll be tired enough on Saturday night that you'll sleep. The time difference won't bother you. <laughs> and and in many cases, that was the case. We'd go back east and we'd win a lot of games back there. But now the way it is, and these guys understand better. You know, they have all these these physical therapists and all these guys who understand these uh, body clocks and things. Pete does it right. And they do they do everything they can do to get the players in that right frame of mind so that when they step on the field, they're 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 ready to go. They're rested. uh, They're healed in many cases. And and, you know, they're 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 prepared to make those snap decisions that you have to make on the football field if you want to win a game. Absolutely. All right. So give me a good Chuck Knox story. I just (laughs) I need to hear something from that era you know, I was a fan, Dave Craig, Kurt Warner, the running back Kurt Warner, for those who oh, yeah. don't know. Uh, that Those teams were very interesting. So do you have something for us? Oh, gosh. There, there's so many great Chuck Knox stories. Uh, some, Most of them, half of them, off the field. Um, but, uh, yeah, he. 
I well, I remember the one year. I think it was '84. He drafted when he got here in in '83. Um, he drafted Kurt Warner was his first ever draft pick. So the running back, of course, from Penn State, and um, uh, just that's what you know. I mean, he didn't get Ground Chuck that name for nothing, mm-hmm. and he wanted the best running back in the country at the time, and he got him. And the next year, Kurt blew out his knee in the first or second game of the season, a home game against Cleveland. ACL, nobody touched him, uh, and it just blew out. And so his the ground chuck suddenly became this team effort to run the ball. But he also was able and understood, hey, I got a guy like Steve Largent. I got some other guys, Daryl Turner, eventually Paul Scanzi. Mm. I have some guys who can catch the football. So let's let's open it up a little bit. Let's give our offense a chance to to really fly. That was also one of the determining factors, I think, that went from Jim Zorn to Dave Craig. Mm-hmm. Jim was more of a scrambler, uh, maybe not quite as accurate as as Dave as a passer, who was much more likely to step back in the pocket, stay there, and throw the football. So he was able to adjust. I mean, he was he was a really terrific coach that way. One of the best stories I ever remember about Chuck was uh, I got to know him pretty well off the field. And my broadcast partner at the time, when I was doing the analyst job after retiring from football, was a guy named Pete Gross. And Pete was here for the first, uh, what, uh, 12 years, 14 years of the franchise as the play-by-play guy. Anyway, us three couples, Pete and his wife, myself and Sharon, my wife, and Chuck Knox and his wife, Shirley, all went to dinner one night at a little Italian restaurant here in Seattle that he'd always wanted to go to. And we went, we had a great meal, and he's telling stories. And they had a little three-piece combo up there playing um, jazz. And I'm a drummer, so... Pete, uh, Chuck walks up to the band, the piano player, and said, hey, my buddy over here, Steve Rabel, can play drums. Can you let him set in? And he put like a 50 in the guy's jar for requests. <laughs> and the guy said, absolutely. And so I went up and played some drums with the jazz group. Meantime, Chuck goes over to the bar and is holding court with everybody else in the restaurant telling stories. He was just remarkable that way. He, he was so much fun, such a dear person. Uh, it was a you know sad moment when we lost him here a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. um, but what a what a wonderful wonderful guy and a and a heck of a football coach. As good as the home field advantage is where you are now, the mm-hmm. Kingdome. How does it stack up to home field advantages we see around the league today? Well, different um, certainly uh, acoustically. Uh, the Kingdome was just that big mushroom concrete top that all the sound just stayed right inside there. And it was just, it was almost brutal at times. It could get so loud. It was great. It was a great, uh, as you said, home field advantage for us. Uh, the thing was though, that it was inside. And so we always knew coming in, we'd have a 68 degree day and dry. And that was good for us at times. It was also good for the other guys. If you put a fast team on the other side of the ball from you, like San Diego, who had Danny Fouts throwing the ball and those great receivers, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Charlie Joyner and, and the rest, Chandler, those guys, Winslow, and they were tough to beat because they were so quick and so good. But it was, it was always nice to be inside. The, the new stadium now, which has been through a number of iterations name-wise, but it's Lumen Field now, uh, was designed so that the kind of they had the the cantilever top that partially covers all of the upper deck and most of the lower deck, and the sound rolls up into it and then is reflected right back down onto the field. So in a way, you get that same noise factor, 
uh, and also the place, I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful place and we have more, you know, the kingdom was very utilitarian. It had like one escalator and not enough bathrooms and all those things. Right. This place has got it all. The suites are fabulous and all those things. And there's a seismometer not far away to register when the place really goes crazy uh, during the, uh, the, uh, one of the touchdowns this last weekend against the Niners. Again, the place was shaking and I'll bet a seismometer was recording that somewhere uh, in the Seattle area. It, it, it's just a, a wonderful facility, a great home field. We raised the 12 flag and it, it, it's just cause for great celebration, especially when we win, which unfortunately we haven't done enough of this year. Well, the franchise went through something that Houston Astros fans can relate to because they were in the National League Central. Now they're in the AL West. But with the Seahawks being in the AFC West, and you know, you hinted at it, seeing Fouts and those guys coming into the Kingdome and the old days of the Broncos and John Elway and everything, who's the biggest rival that you still think about that the fan base still identifies with from that division when the Seahawks played in the AFC West? Oh, hands down the Raiders. Mm -hmm. But then everybody hated the Raiders. I mean, yeah. everybody, I think most people still do, even though they're in Las Vegas. I mean, I've, I've been around the Raiders long enough that they were in Oakland, then Los Angeles, then back to Oakland, mm -hmm. now Las Vegas. So if you, you know, you have any memory of, of those teams and they were always the bully on the block, you know, they won a lot of football games. They won Super Bowls during the time that, that uh, I was playing. Um, John Madden was coaching and then Tom Flores after that, before Tom came up here as the president and then ultimately the coach, uh, that was kind of a disastrous time, but not a nicer gentleman on the planet than Tom Flores. Um, but we won a lot of those games. I remember in 1978, we went down to Oakland. We had beaten the Raiders up here in Seattle earlier in the season. Then we go to Oakland and we play them down there. And uh, it comes down to an Efren Herrera field goal. Uh, with 12 seconds left, and we win the game there. We beat them twice mm -hmm. that season, and I think they went on and won the Super Bowl that year. So we had had, uh, you know, we kind of had their number a little bit, but it was always great um, to uh, to play them. Denver, we had a pretty good, uh, uh, you know, rivalry with. Much tougher to play at Mile High when you're not used to it. Obviously, the altitude. Uh, mm -hmm. I can remember many times going in in the locker room after the game and just lying on the floor and heaving until you finally get your breath. Um, wow. That's just until you get used to it. That's, that's the way it is up there. So yeah, it's, it's, it's the NFC West now is a great place to be. San Francisco would probably be considered our biggest rival, but in those days it was the Raiders. Steve, great stuff. Efren Herrera, what a name pull. That's great. There you uh, go. I can remember the old names. I don't remember the new ones very well, but I remember the old guys. Uh, a lot of names. Well, Steve, thanks so much for the visit. We really appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you on Sunday. Mark, pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Don't have too much good luck, okay? Uh, well, <laughs> we haven't had too much. We'll see what happens. Thanks. Okay, bud. Thank you. I had seen an NFL film segment that was done on Steve, and Everybody talked about him just being salt of the earth. This is the kind of guy you just absolutely love. And you can hear that come through uh, in that interview with Steve Rabel. That was awesome. Steve and Mark, two of the best in the business right there. Andre Davis was one of the best returners in the business. He joins Drew on a little Where Are They Now? Next on Texans All Access. X on Texans All Access. X on Texans All Access. I am calling all my Houston area teachers out there. You want to bring a little Texas football to your classrooms? Well, good. Then sign up for Toro's Math Drills presented by ConocoPhillips. Toro's Math Drills is a video series designed to help third and fourth graders learn how to tackle math in the classroom. 
Go to HoustonTexans.com slash Toro's Math Drills to learn more. And I welcome you back to Wednesday edition of Texans All Access. And because it's Wednesday, that means it's time for Where Are They Now with Drew Doherty. This week, it's returner extraordinaire, big play receiver, Andre Davis. Drew, take it away. Always fun catching up with former Texans, and this one's a good one. It's Andre Davis, wide receiver for the Houston Texans. You played here in 07, in 08, 09, and 10. And when you look back at your career, if you just Google your name, Andre, you see lots of stuff about a 99-yard touchdown reception, a 104-yard kickoff return for a touchdown. You always went deep, and you scored a lot in your time in the league and in college, and we're going to get into that, but First things first, where are you these days and what are you doing? Oh, yes. I am in the great state of Delaware. Yeah. I know a lot of people are probably having a, a hard time wondering, where is Delaware? Well, I'm on the East Coast, up in the Northeast, um, a great location. I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of everything. Uh, it's a small town that's growing tremendously right now called Middletown, Delaware. Okay. Um, about 45 minutes from Philly, hour from Baltimore, two hours from D.C. and New York City. So I can get to the beaches in an hour. I can get to the mountains in Pennsylvania in about an hour and a half as well. So I'm right where I want to be right now. It's a good part of the country. I'm actually, I know what you mean when you say Delaware, and I know a little bit about Delaware. I've been to Delaware quite a bit. I like the state of Delaware. It's a great place. And I've, anyways, what are you doing? I mean, you live in there, but what are you, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, uh, I'm a husband of 18 years. I'm a father of four. I got four wonderful young kids right now that, Congrats. I mean, that's a job in and of itself, yes. right? Taking care of the family, making sure everyone is where they need to be. Uh, oftentimes I, uh, think of myself as uh, an Uber driver for my kids because <laughs> of all the activities that we have going on all over the place. But it's a great opportunity to be here with them at this season in, uh, in their lives right now um, and just really being able to see them grow. But um, and, and being able to really take advantage of, of my platform and my time in the NFL, I also realized I wanted to give back to my alma mater as well. And uh, for those of you who don't know, I graduated from Virginia Tech back in 2001. It's just one of those things that, you know, going through all of those different transitions uh, in life from high school to college, college into the pros, and then the pros into figuring out what you want to do with the rest of your life. Um, I always had it on my heart to be able to give back. I, I, I believe that service is really a part of who I am and, and what I've been placed here on earth to do. Um, and I'm currently the director of student athlete support and community engagement at Virginia Tech. And really what that allows me to do is to be an ambassador of the athletic department to be able to give back to those current student athletes who are there, helping them to make the most of their opportunities while they're in school. Uh, it allows me to speak with uh, donors um, who are there, who are giving back to the athletic department as well as to the college and, and being able to help them understand how far it goes when you're able to provide scholarships for the student athletes and uh, the great opportunities and programs that are involved there as well to be able to give our student athletes resources to be able to be you know, the best students that they can be. It's a lot of fun being able to go down there and help recruit as well and being able to talk to them about my experience 
uh, you know, being a, I was a football All-American as well as an academic All-American while I was at school at Virginia Tech. So to be able to kind of just go through my life and be able to share the different things that I went through and how Virginia Tech made me uh, successful is something I enjoy doing when I get back there. Yeah, you played eight years in the NFL. You just mentioned the All-American status and, and whatnot. Phenomenal athlete. And if you play college athletics, you're a phenomenal athlete. But the but the vast majority of, of those scholar athletes don't wind up getting to do their sport as professionals. Sounds like you're kind of helping funnel guys and gals into possible careers elsewhere and, and give them opportunities, open doors for them. Is that kind of what I'm getting into when I'm picking up from what you just said? And how yeah. rewarding is that when you get to do that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and kudos once again to all of our educators and all of our yeah. teachers and everyone who's out there uh, giving their all uh, to help the next generation be able to uh, be successful because it is one of those things that a lot of times you don't know how it turns out when you get a chance to speak to the student athletes, when you get a chance to see recruits, they might not come to your college, but you have these moments of being able to share just nuggets of, uh, of wisdom, of experiences that you've been through. And, and to be able to be there and, and help them through those times and try to uh, make them aware of pitfalls that might be in their way, but even more so help them to take advantage of all of the opportunities that are right in front of them while they're in school. Um, I, I try to put myself back in their shoes and I know it's going on a couple of years now since I've been in their shoes, but it's one of those things that they put so much stock in wanting to go professional or wanting to be the best that they can be in their sports. And that is very admirable. And that is something that I continue to push them on. But I also want them to understand that this is going to be for a temporary amount of time. Even if that's you playing a long time uh, for football, you know, if you play 10 years, let's say you get there, you're probably only going to be in your low thirties by the time you get done and retire from there. And uh, to be able to have an education that you can always fall back on or even use um, during your times uh, in the NFL and in the all seasons and, and being able to build relationships and networks. I think people are starting to get a better understanding of that now, especially in the landscape of professional sports. You're seeing uh, athletes all over the place take advantage of their platforms uh, to give them a wider platform for when they retire. But Andre, that's not all you're doing at Virginia Tech, is it? I'm involved with the, the campaign steering committee as well as on their uh, the, the college uh, board. And so it's just finding ways to get back once again, not only on the student athlete side, which is kind of how things started with me there, but through those relationships. And as people hear my story in the ways of giving back, they see how I could be of service in other areas. So, you know, to all of us as athletes, we are much more powerful than, you know, we could ever imagine with the platform and the stories and experiences that we have. So I hope that you know, we won't take that for granted, but that we would be able to use these as uh, a way to open up new doors to, to really be able to, to give back in, in different ways because we have a lot to share. All right. Let's talk about your college days. Right now, it's 2021. We're in the final month of the season, basically. And if you play college football, you're on TV. Your, your game is broadcast. Doesn't matter where you play college football. I mean, down to some of the lower levels, even. Basically, every college football team that's in Division I, they're on TV. That was not the case 25 years ago. Virginia Tech was on TV a lot, but the nation didn't necessarily see every Virginia Tech game or have the, the opportunity to see every Virginia Tech game. And you played with Michael Vick, 
You played for a national title, January 4th, 2000. And you guys were like a revelation. I mean, people were having their minds blown seeing what you guys were able to do. What was it like being a part of that team when you were there? Because it's, it's the best Virginia Tech team of all time. And it was an amazing, amazing set of, of guys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned that, that all the teams are on TV right now, because I remember when I was being, uh, when I was making my choices between my colleges, um, there was a lot of smaller schools up in the Northeast uh, that were recruiting me. And when I made the choice to go to Virginia Tech, I was like, well, those guys play on TV. Uh, you know, maybe if I play pretty well, there might be an opportunity to, you know, get to the next level, not really understanding how everything works from that level. So to see, you know, once again, being one of those schools that's kind of on the outskirts that you're trying to make a name for yourself, they were playing well, but like you said, not a lot of people around the country knew who Virginia Tech was. And to be a part of that success, to get to the point we were, where we went undefeated in the regular season and played against mm -hmm. Florida State in the national championship game. It, it was absolutely amazing seeing how the team came together. Oftentimes you, you have a feeling as you're going through the season that we've got something special here. When you see the defense playing well and you're trying to outdo them on offense, and then special teams. I mean, we have the legendary coach Frank yeah. Beamer who who Best really taught us, teams. you know, taught us how important special teams could be and how you can make such an impact at certain points in the game that a lot of people think are it's just a change of possession. You know, ultimately just don't fumble the ball, get the snap <laughs> off, punt it. A lot of people look at it from that standpoint, whereas Coach Beamer looked at it like this could be a momentum changer at mm -hmm. any given point in time. And we see, it seemed like once again, sorry to interrupt, but it seemed like yeah. once a game, the Hokies were either blocking a kick or taking a kick back. And you, you were a part of that. I mean, every single game, it seemed like, you know, there was a special teams whopper of a play. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, I can look back and say my first ESPN highlight was blocking a punt against Boston College up in Boston College. And then to be able to end off and be the, you know, punt returner on the team, returning touchdowns. I mean, I was firsthand one of those guys who understood how special special teams really were and how it could make such a difference in the game. And I think for us that year, that's what made that year so special is that anytime you were on the field, I mean, I can recall wanting to just stand up and watch because you never knew when we were going to get a turnover. You mm -hmm. never knew when a big play was going to happen. You just didn't want to miss it. And so being a part of that, it made the game fun because you're always trying to outdo each other. And when you have that kind of competitive nature um, and then you have the success that follows there, it, it was a great time to be a Hokie back then. In high school, I think the story goes, you were a soccer player. You wound up getting into football later. You had always done track and field. You always had the speed and everything. You come to Virginia Tech and you mentioned that. You guys are undefeated in that one season and you play for the national title. I think in a two year span that you were there, you guys lost two games total. You know, correct me if I'm wrong there. When did you start getting noticed? You think by the NFL, was it immediate? Was it something like that kind of came over time? How'd that go for you? Yeah, I, I think it was after that season, then uh, the game that we went to the national championship game mm -hmm. um, and, and being uh, the leading receiver on that team. Yeah, he caught a touchdown in the game. And, and caught a touchdown in the national championship game. I think when I got a chance to reflect on that season, it was just like, man, I'm, I think I'm playing pretty well. Like I might be able to do this at the next level. Like I need to, I need to take it even more serious and realize like, man, there's a future in this. 
Um, and then I think halfway through the next season uh, in two, 2000, so the 2000 season, our only loss that year was to Miami, um, yeah. who I believe won the national championship that year. When Miami was Miami, you know. Oh, like... I mean, <laughs> their, their team was so stacked that yeah. year. And I want to say Andre uh, Johnson was on the team. He was. I mean, they had so many star players, all Americans, and even, you know, Hall of Famers, not just potentially college football Hall of Famers, but NFL Hall of Famers that were on that team. It was probably sometime in that year. I got hurt in that season, but uh, there was a nationally televised game where we played against West Virginia, and I had three touchdowns in six minutes. One on a, uh, it was like a 30-yard reverse, and then a 60-yard bomb by Mike, uh, Mike Vick to myself, and then a 70-yard punt return for a touchdown on back-to-back-to-back uh, possessions. And it was after that game where I was like, okay, this, this is it. I, I think I could play at the next level. Golly. What was it like playing with Mike Vick? Tyrod Taylor's the quarterback here and he's a Virginia tech guy. He loves Mike Vick. He's they're from the same area and everything, but what was it like playing with the, he's, he's got a zillion great stories about him. What was it like playing with Mike Vick? Absolutely. And shout out to Tyrod, man. I'm, I'm so proud of everything that he's doing right now and then continued success, wish him yeah. continued success for the rest of this year and for the Texans. I mean, it was special from the moment that he got there. I was here a year before him. And because of how well he did, he left a year before I did. So wow. he, didn't, he didn't have to stay too long being the number one draft pick overall. It took me a little more uh, time to mature. You did okay. You did okay, Andre. So, <laughs> it was special, you know, seeing him uh, at that point, our defense was playing pretty solid. Um, our offense had to really step up to try to uh, match what our defense was doing at that time. And I remember, Mike being on scout team and this was the year that um, they redshirted him and uh, you know he traveled with the team the whole year just to get a a gist of what it was like being on on game day but being on the scout team with him and seeing the things that he was doing to our start in defense it it was it was ridiculous it it was pretty amazing to see that uh, you know you've got guys here who are defensive player of the year you know from the big east and uh you know all big east members that are out there and he's running circles around these guys and getting open and zipping the ball in there and i think it was at that point that we knew we had something special but i don't think any of us knew really the outcome of what it would be but we knew we could go out there and do some damage it's always funny to hear those stories about guys like that when they have to play scout team and they probably shouldn't be playing scout team. They're just, it's almost counterproductive because the defense is trying to get a look and nothing that they're going to see on game day is as good as what, you know, this guy's doing or as unique as what a guy like Mike Vick is doing. So you wind up getting drafted by the Cleveland Browns, 2002 Cleveland Browns go to the playoffs that year. And it was the first time they'd been, I mean, what was it like rookie season? What was it like getting drafted? I mean, take me through the draft weekend and then that rookie year that you had in Cleveland. The draft weekend was really uh, interesting. I think uh, because I started football so late, I had no frame of reference of how to take this. No one told me anything about it. It was just one of those things like things are about to change. I was at home, uh, my small hometown of Niskayuna, New York. Shout out to Niskayuna. It was just with my family, uh, my girlfriend at the time. Actually, she was my fiance at the time. And it was just family and friends sitting there watching TV and, and waiting to you know hear the phone ring. 
And it was, it was a lot of fun just being around family, but very nerve wracking being there and waiting. And I remember the first phone call I got was from the Arizona Cardinals. And at that point, you know, your mindset starts going to, all right, it's going to be hot, but man, that's nice weather. Like, okay. Like I, I got my mindset around that. Maybe three minutes after that phone call, the Cleveland Browns call and say, Hey, Andre, we're going to pick you up. And so of course you got to have that quick change of pace and say, okay, no more Arizona weather. We got Cleveland. Uh, <laughs> we got the, those winners and that wind off of the lake coming. But at the same time, it's like, hey, they picked up the phone and they actually, you know, backed it up and they chose me. Uh, I believe I was the 47th overall pick in the second round. And it's one of those things that's a, a dream come true of wanting to be a professional athlete. When I was younger, I wanted to run in the Olympics. I, I really wanted to be a professional athlete. I did not know it was going to be football would be the way to go, but it was something that was a, a great experience to be able to uh, have that with my family. And then you get there. It's a good team that year. I mean, they, they went to yeah. the playoffs and, and what was it like playing for Butch Davis and, and being a part of that crew that, that did what they did that, for that, that year in, uh, in Cleveland? Drew, it, it's one of those things that's very... It's very difficult to, to put into words is that your first season you go and you go into the playoffs and it's like, oh, that was, it was tough. It was a tough season, but like, hey, we're here. We've got a good team. We've, we had a good mix of veteran players and young players. And I felt that was something that was really important um, to have because a lot of us younger players, we all wanted to start, you know, that's everyone's goal is you want to be a starter. But at the same time, I think everyone understood their role. And I think that's something that's very important that you have on a team is that when you understand your role, you're able to go in there and be the best you can be for whatever and however many snaps you may be out there. When you're not sitting there, you know, mad on the sidelines, like, oh, I should be this, I should be that. All of a sudden they put you in there and now you're cold, your mindset's all messed up and, you know, you fail in the opportunities you get. Um, I know we're all supposed to be professional, but a lot of guys, you know, these things uh, creep up in your mind when you're out there getting ready to play. So I thought everyone knew their role and it, it stunk that we lost to Pittsburgh, I think that year, three times mm. and all three games we lost by three points, especially the playoff one hurt because I want to say we were leading the game either into halftime or into the third quarter. We were leading and uh, ended up you know, losing that game. So to see that happen, we had very high hopes going into the next year, but that's when the business side of things really kicked in. And uh, they ended up, we ended up losing a lot of our veteran players because of the uh, success that a lot of the young players have. And, and that was kind of my first experience really seeing how the, you know, things work with business on young players and, and really trying to get the best bang for your buck. Well, that's some great stuff from Andre Davis. Man, there's so many Andres around. You got to make sure that when I say Andre, you're like, okay, is it where? Is it Johnson? Is it Davis? Which one is it? Well, in this case, it was Andre Davis, who, like I said, made one of those great, one of the great catches, I think, in Texans history on a deep ball from Sage Rosenfels, a 2007 game against the Titans. And it would have remained one of the great plays of all time for the Texans had the Titans not come right back down. Kerry Collins leading them to a win and Rob Barona's field goal at the end. It's, it, it, you know the game I'm talking about. It's an absolute disaster. And Sage Rosenfels brings them back in the fourth quarter, and Andre Davis was a big part of that. All right, we get back. Well, we're going to go around the league. Got a shorty. So I got a Schlumberger Stats Challenge for you. 
some quick information of what's going on in the NFL. And we'll do that next on Texans Access. Next on Texans Access. Next on Texans Access. We got one final segment of this edition of Texans All Access. And I want to remind parents to register their kids 12 and under to become a Toros Kids Club member for free and submit their holiday wish list for their chance to be granted at least one item off of that list from Santa Toro. That's right. Learn more at HoustonTexans.com. We got one final segment on this Wednesday edition of Texans All Access. Glad you've been with me, John Harris, football analyst, sideline reporter for your Texans. It's time for our Schlumberger Stats Challenge of the week. Last week, Kamu Grugier-Hill was outstanding. He set a record for tackles in a game for the Texans with 18 plus one. Makes 19. Yeah, I messed up. It wasn't 18. It was 19. I messed up the punchline, but I saved it, I think. Because 18 plus 1 is 19. He had 19 tackles. Now, I remember early in the game, Mark saying, man, Kamu Grugier-Hill's got seven tackles already. And I looked up the clock, and it was, I think, halfway through the first quarter. So Kamu had been getting it done in that game, and hopefully he will do that against the Seattle Seahawks on Sunday. Kickoff is at noon. Russell Wilson and the gang from Seattle coming here. The last two times they've come here, 2013, we talked about that in our In the Lab segment. You know how that one ended, and it changed lives, as Mark likes to say. Richard Sherman's pick six, and I played the call for Mark the other day, and right in the middle of it, you hear, no way! I mean, he really, he was calling the action, and then the interception just, ugh. 2009, though, the Texans ripped the Seahawks 34-7. to I'm looking for more of that on Sunday, more so than anything else. But congrats to Kamu. 19 tackles, a team record. A big thanks to John Boyle, DP Sidhu, Drew Doherty, Andre Davis, Mark Vandermeer, and of course, GM Nick Casario. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And as always, go Texans.